and welcome to the second episode of Voices and Queries, the V&Q Books podcast. I just want to slip in a quick thank you right at the beginning to So Mayer, who came up with the name Voices and Queries. I really like it. Thank you, So. So I'm Katie Derbyshire, the publisher at V&Q Books. I'm talking today to the writer Isabel Bogdan, author of our book The Peacock, expertly translated by Annie Rutherford, who will be in our next episode. Hello to Hamburg, Isa. Hi, Katie. We're, you and I are on Zoom right now, but we've met countless times in real life because Isa and I have been friends for many years. I'm not quite sure how many years it is, actually. What I know is that we met in the medieval German town of Wolfenbüttel. Yes. Tell us a little bit about how we came to be there, Isa. Uh, Wolfenbüttel holds the annual uh, translators gathering, and I have no idea how many ages ago we met there but I certainly do remember that it was love at first sight oh <laughs> at least so, from my part <laughs> <laughs> no 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 the feeling's mutual but why were you at a translator's gathering Isa? well why would I <laughs> well because I'm a translator and I just love all these literature business and translators gatherings and uh, meeting people what you would call networking nowadays um, mm. and I just like being around people who talk right. about books yeah and language yeah. and everything so the things that we've done there in Wolfenbüttel we've definitely done some workshopping together we've listened to writers talking we've also done a fair amount of dancing I attended a workshop that you taught about oh yes tap dancing and translation yes we did a little workshop on rhythm in prose I mean rhythm is obvious in poetry but there also has to be some kind of rhythm in prose so uh, we made a little tap dancing body percussion rhythm workshop right it was fun I remember it yeah. um so you'd been translating for a long time before you started, or before you published your writing, let's say. Um, I don't know when you started writing. Uh, and I know a lot of translators in English talk about writing translations. So is there a big difference between the two art forms for you? Um, there is a difference. And as a translator, as you will know, people always ask you, don't you want to write your own book? They do. And uh, most translators uh, get a little upset about this question <laughs> because it always sounds a bit like translating was some kind of writing second class. Yeah. As if translating was for people who can't manage the real thing. And that's just not the point. It's a different kind of writing. It's it's also writing um, you don't have to make up your own story. You don't have to find your own characters. You don't have uh, full re responsibility for what you write, only for the words. But to be honest, I thought for a long time that translating was easier than writing. Mm. And then I met a friend who is a writer and occasionally translates, Zoe Beck, um, who you might know. Yeah. Um, and she said, oh, no, writing is much easier than translating because when I write, I can write my own thoughts in my own language. And when I translate, I have to write down somebody else's thoughts 
in a kind of language that I think he would have written if he had written in German. Yeah. Um, so that's much harder. Also, she said, when I write something and then discover it's just not good, yeah. I can just delete it. Yes. <laughs> and if I translate something that's not good, I can try to put it into pretty words, but um, it doesn't change the meaning. Right. We're not allowed to change that content. Exactly. <laughs> um, so what's it been like to have your book translated by Annie into a language you know so well? You translate from mo mainly from English, right? Only from English, yes. Um, and it's been very exciting because there's already two other translations into Dutch and Spanish, which I don't speak. But, um, well, it being European languages, I can sort of figure out what point of the story we're at. Yeah. Um, but I can't really uh, see whether it's a good translation, whether the, the sound is right and everything. And um, I can do that with Annie's translation. And I think it's fabulous. And she did a brilliant job. And I sort of hear myself only in better English than I'm able to write. <laughs> <laughs> I think she's done an amazing job. I'm really pleased with the translation. Yeah, so am I. So let's talk a bit about the book. It's set in Scotland, of all places. We're joking about Coles to Newcastle, taking a German book mm -hmm. set in Scotland to Scotland. Um, what's your relationship to that setting? It seems very affectionate. It is. And it's um, actually my husband's fault because he's been playing Scottish and Irish folk music ever since he was 14. So he went to Scotland when he was a student and... Um, went there for a year to uh, to teach as a foreign language assistant and um, that's exactly 30 years ago wow. it was in 1991 and we've been going back ever since lovely we've spent a lot of holidays in Scotland and um, know the kind of places the book is set at yeah yeah you can tell I think I hope <laughs> <laughs> um this feels like a good moment to hear a little taster Uh, we've persuaded our friend Kari Dixon, who's uh, in Edinburgh, to give us a little reading, a little patchwork from the opening of the novel. So here she is. One of the peacocks had gone mad, or maybe he just couldn't see very well. At any rate, he suddenly regarded anything blue and shiny as competition on the marriage market. Luckily, there were very few blue and shiny things in the little glen at the foot of the highlands. There were fields and meadows and trees and altogether a great deal of green and there was a, the heather and any number of sheep. The only blue shiny things which occasionally strayed there was the holidaymakers' cars. Lord and Lady Mackintosh had converted the former farm buildings, barns and anything else vaguely suitable which belonged to their estates into holiday cottages so that the old place recovered at least some of the money it gobbled up. The oldest parts of the castle presumably dated back to the 17th century, when the castle had been built, and there had been various annexes and extensions over the following centuries. There hadn't always been enough money for ongoing modernisations, and this remained the case today. The house cost money. The plaster would flake off the facade and need replacing, and then a water pipe would burst, or the roof would need repairing. Lady Fiona mainly repaired the electrics herself, because hardly any electricians nowadays can still cope with 110 volts or deal with the old fuses. 
The heating costs regularly bought the Macintoshes out in a sweat, which is more than could be said of the temperatures in the house. In a fit of exuberance one day, Lord Macintosh had purchased five peacocks, three females and two males. He had imagined how pretty it would be when the males strutted around on the great lawn in front of the house, fanning out their trains. The less attractive females were to stay quietly in the background, discreetly giving the males a reason to compete and fan their tail feathers in the first place. That's how he'd pictured it. Lord Macintosh was very keen on animals in general, but he didn't understand very much about them. He hadn't counted on the peacocks widening their radius of activity so much that they generally weren't to be seen at all. He also hadn't counted on the fact that instead they could be heard very well indeed, their cries echoing through the glen, so it sounded a bit like a jungle. But the Macintoshes got used to that, and on the whole, the peacocks were left to themselves and did as they pleased. And they only found out their trains during mating season in the spring. After that, they shed their long tail feathers. These only grew back the following spring, which impressed Lady Fiona all over again each year. Nature really was full of marvels. Once a year, the peacocks bred somewhere in the wood and had young, most of which didn't survive. Each year, one or two made it, and now there were at least four males and six females, although no one knew the exact number. At some point, the peacocks even settled on the division of feed and on social niceties with a cantankerous old goose. And after a while, all of the animals got on and basically left one another alone. They lived peacefully alongside each other and the holidaymakers were delighted no matter what. Until one of the peacocks went mad or couldn't see very well. Afterwards, of course, it was impossible to find out what the problem was and when it had begun. At any rate, when Mr and Mrs Bakshi arrived at the end of August, nobody could have suspected a thing. The Bakshis had rented one of the cottages for three weeks. They were in the former wash house and were enchanted and enraptured, saying quite often how good they had it and how delightful everything was and how lucky they were to have ended up here. In all honesty, the cottage wasn't exactly luxurious. There was no shower, just a badly insulated bathtub in which the water always went cold immediately. In the kitchen, the floor sloped so much that the Bakshis felt like they were on a ship for the first few days, for the ground was never quite where they expected it to be. But it didn't take long before they got used to the fact that the water never fully ran out of the sink because the plug hole wasn't at the lowest point. Mrs Bakshi could cope with the fact that the oil always ended up on one side of the pan. She found this charming and enchanting too. At some point, they even thought it handy that every grape they dropped rolled into the same corner. They were so delighted by everything that on their final evening they invited the Macintoshes to a farewell dinner in the wash house, at which Mrs Bakshi served the laird and lady a spectacular chicken korma. It wasn't really the done thing to visit the cottages of paying guests, but since the death of the old laird a few years ago, Hamish and Fiona Macintosh no longer stood on ceremony. It was the end of that evening that the peacock went crazy for the first time. Mr and Mrs Bakshi accompanied the Macintoshes to the door and when they opened it, the light from the hallway fell on the Bakshi's car. It was metallic blue, glinted in the light and was, to put it mildly, not exactly a luxury vehicle. The four of them stood by the door engaging in courtesies when suddenly, 
As if out of nowhere, one of the peacocks lunged at the car and attacked the vehicle, crying loudly and beating its wings, hammering with a terrible clatter at the hood with its beak, and baffling and startling the Macintoshes just as much as the Bakshis. No one wants to mess with an angry peacock, and this one was certainly furious. The ladies fled into the cottage, and the men had them pass out a blanket, which they shook, yelling at the peacock. This apparently impressed him sufficiently, and he flapped away. The Bakshis and the Macintoshes, first of all, drank a whisky for the fright, and then another, and then they stopped, because Lady Fiona was, after all, a lady. Before the Macintoshes left, they turned off the light in the cottage so as not to illuminate the blue car and tempt the angry peacock back again. So there's plenty of room for um, an action-packed comedy of errors, as um, Annie Rutherford calls the book. What happens next, Isa? Well, there's this group of investment bankers from London who come um, to this castle and um, they want to make a team-building weekend. And um, the team doesn't work very well. And um, they don't deal very well with um, the obstacles that this old house poses. But they do kind of grow together. And, um, well, the lady boss of the banker group comes in a blue car. Uh-oh. And, uh, yes. So <laughs> um, the peacock has to disappear and uh, well, it ends with a story taking place that none of the characters in the book realizes, and the only one who's who knows what's going on is the reader. Excellent. Now, Isa, how did German readers react to the book? They've been pretty keen on it, right? Um, I don't know how to answer this without sounding like I'm bragging. <laughs> because brag away actually yes they liked it a lot and so did the booksellers the moment it hit the shelves and I think I was very lucky because half a year before the peacock my first translation of Jane Gardam came out which is called Ein Untadeliger Mann in German that's old filth in English right. and booksellers just loved it and readers loved it and it sold very well. And the newspapers also loved it. So my name was all over the place as a translator. Great. And then half a year later, the peacock came out. And actually, it hasn't stopped. <laughs> it's been out in Germany for five years now, and it's still selling. I love that. And that's fantastic, because um, having been in the business for so long, I know how unlikely a thing like, like that is. Yeah. So... I'm really, really happy and yeah. pleased. A lot of German readers, friends and acquaintances, I know, like to give you little gifts that tied into the book. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about that? I've got an apartment full of peacock design little things, mugs and uh, toys and two copies of a children's book called Blau. Wie Pfau, meaning blue as peacock, Ooh. 
Blue like a Only rhymes in German. <laughs> right. And my favorite is a pair of, what's it called? House shoes. Slippers. Um, <laughs> slippers, which are huge, plush, peacock things. Wow. They've got the head sticking out in front and um, the tail pointing up in the back. Wow. I'll send a picture for Instagram. Oh, please do. I really want <laughs> to see that. <laughs> Tell us how you wrote the book. Um, what kind of research did you do? Because it's set around this team building weekend. It started with a peacock who had gone crazy in real life right. and attacked blue things and blue cars. And I thought, that's just such a crazy story. I have to tell it. I have to turn it into a story. And then I started off with a short story, which had like 20 pages or so. Yeah. And after a while, I thought, actually, at the end of this short story, that's not the end of the story. You haven't finished your story. So it just grew. And at one point, I decided, okay, I'm going to try to make it into a novel, which was well, quite uh, größenwahnsinnig. <laughs> Megalomaniac. <laughs> Megalomaniac. Because I hadn't really been writing before. Right. It was like my second short story yeah. or something. Um, <laughs> so I, I just decided to turn it into a novel and uh, wrote parts of it in Scotland and asked friends for things like uh, names. Didn't you also help me with names we did we talked about names yeah and it took me quite a while to get it written because at first I thought I could uh, write while I was translating and after a while I discovered it doesn't work I can't write like Jane Gardam or Nick Hornby during the day and then write like Isabel Bogdan in the evening of course yeah it didn't really work so I've uh, finished my translation work and then uh, took a few months off to be able to write and concentrate on my own writing. Well, thank you for doing that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thousands of people are grateful for that. Um, <laughs> there's this um, whole kind of satire, a gentle satire of work culture going on with these bankers who go to Scotland from London for this team building mm -hmm. weekend, which ends up a little bit longer. Um, how did you know about that kind of work culture? I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I, I've never been working in a bank and I've never been on a team building event. But, um, well, people told me all these stories about building a hut in the forest and um, having to draw ships to represent your company and um, all this stuff. And, well, I did buy a book on team building but didn't read it. I sort of you know, flipped through it and put it under my cushion one night so I could soak it up in my dreams. And actually, um, after one reading, a guy came to me and said, um, have you ever worked in a bank? Because you know bankers so well. And I said, yeah. no, I don't. And actually, it doesn't really matter for the book, whether they are bankers or something else. I wanted it to be a posh job and people who are used to some kind of luxury. So they are confronted with a rather simple life and nature and 
not so well working uh, showers and <laughs> all that stuff. <laughs> no, it works. The contrast is really fun to read. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we're allowed to talk about it, but there's actually a film adaptation in the works, right? Are we, am I allowed to ask you about it? I think you are. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's a film adaptation in the works, and that's so exciting. It is. I have quite fixed images in my imagination of all the different characters. When you were writing, did you do this kind of fantasy actor casting for the novel? I actually did because there was a kind of questionnaire going around around among bloggers who were writing on a novel um, at that time. Okay. And then one question was, um, if the book was made into a film, who would you want to play the main characters? And I thought, oh, haven't thought about that at all. I'm not much of a film person, actually. But then I started looking for actors and discovered that it helped me a lot to define my characters because all of a sudden they had faces and I could imagine them better. And of course, I want Colin Firth as the Lord and uh, <laughs> Ooh. yeah, John Hanna for Andrew and, um, <laughs> you know. Well, at the moment, um, the idea is um, it's going to be a German film. Ooh. So we have to have German actors. So in the film, the bankers will come from Frankfurt. Okay. So we'll have German actors for bankers. And um, we can still have Colin Firth as the Lord. Ah. I think we can all, always have Colin Firth for everything. <laughs> yes. I, I think we can always find room for Colin Firth. Hello, Colin Firth. Are you hearing this? <laughs> ah, I'm sure he is, yes. I'm sure he has a bot set up for every podcast that mentions him. Yeah, we might just send him the book. Yeah, we'll have to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, why not? A mere question of finding out his address, yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, it can't be that hard. <laughs> just Google. Just Google Colin Firth. Well, I hope you are listening, Colin. Um, and I hope uh, that particular dream of yours comes true, Isabel Bogdan. Oh, so do I. All I have left to say is buy the book and check out our website, vq-books.eu. Watch out for more episodes there or wherever you source your podcasts and look us up on social media. Our handle is vqbooks because you can't do an ampersand on social media. We couldn't have done this without Carrie Dixon, so thank you so much to her. And, of course, many, many thanks to Isabel Bogdan for the conversation, to our wonderful producer Susan Stone for recording, producing and editing, and to Andy Sire for our theme tune. If you haven't heard our first episode, why not seek it out? It's all about Salem Erstwan's book, The Blacksmith's Daughter. For more Peacock content, tune in for our next episode with ESA's translator, Annie Rutherford. See you then. Hear you then. This podcast was co-funded by the European Union's Creative Europe programme.